leading our meetings allow newcomers to dominate the discussion or interrupt others, or do we help them to be a part of the group right away by telling them about the meeting format and ground rules in a kind way? Do we encourage members to use the telephone to help ourselves and each other, not just for, not just for complaints and gossip? Do we belittle other OA members or group who approach, who, I'm sorry, do we belittle other OA members or groups whose approaches to working the program are different from ours? Do we support OA activities that bring us into contact with other groups? Have we taken the time to learn about OA as a whole? Do we support OA as a whole to the best of our ability? Do we encourage all our, of our members to share honestly with the group, even when they're going through rough times? Or do we take the attitude that those who are having trouble shouldn't share? The first tradition of unity reminds us of an important truth. We are not alone. We are connected to our fellow human beings. Our emotional and spiritual health depends upon the health of our relationships. The disease of compulsive overeating, which once isolated us, has now led us to OA. Here, in local groups, sponsorship roles, intergroups, regional assemblies, and OA worldwide, we are learning to connect with other people in ways that will nurture them and nurture us as we recover together. Our first speaker is Judy from Sacramento, who will be speaking for 25 minutes. Hi everybody, I'm Judy and I'm a compulsive overeater. Let me get all settled in here up here at the podium. Uh, it's, it's really an honor for me to be here and to be speaking. And I can't say that I was asked to speak because, you know, when you fill out that form that you're going to register, you know, it says, what kind of service would you like to do? And, and I put down, oh, hospitality or be a greeter or, you know, hug people. And then I saw the thing for speaking. I go, oh, yeah, yeah, I could do that. And so I checked that, too. And, you know, I was fine with it. It's always God's will. And about a month ago, I was listening to tapes, and I had um, been doing a lot of big book tapes, you know, for months. And um, I got some of the region tapes. We always buy the region, you know, con convention tapes. And I was listening to these people, and all of a sudden my ego kicked in. Because everybody I listened to had wonderful recovery, long-term abstinence, and said things with absolute wisdom. And so then I started kicking into, like, I'm not good enough. Oh, no, you know. So I've been speaking about that at my Saturday morning Roseville meeting for a couple of weeks. So uh, God's in charge, as he always is. Um, today, when we talk about Tradition 1, like it was just read, it said our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends on OA unity. So I thought I would start with my personal recovery, tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I came into Overeaters Anonymous on August 23rd, a Thursday morning meeting in Modesto in 1979. And I had heard about OA about two weeks previously. I was in graduate school, and this gal that I was working on a project with, we, we were somewhere, and she ordered a diet soda. And here I was, well over 200 pounds, looking at her, and I said, oh, you don't need that. And she said, well, let me tell you about a program in, I'm in. I'm in the program of Overeaters Anonymous. And I ha had only just briefly read about it. There was a magazine in Good House, uh, an article in Good Housekeeping 
that had been my problem and how I solved it. It's a regular column, you know, in Good Housekeeping Magazine, and it was about OA. And then to hear an actual living, breathing person talk about it just blew me away. Because I don't know about you, but the word anonymous just makes it sound kind of shady or, I don't know, you know, kind of ominous, actually. And so putting together what I had read briefly in that little article with a real human being talking about it, I got really excited. And um, she was going to be gone the next week, but we made plans in two weeks when she got back to go to this Thursday morning, meaning 10 a.m. And you know what? I went home and I thought about it, and I thought, I can't wait. And I went by myself, and it's the best thing I absolutely ever did for myself. Um, to retract a little bit, um, I was a child who was always overweight. My first memory of being a compulsive overeater was when I was seven, and I was at Brownie Scouts, and they were serving lunch, and they were serving hot dogs. And I can remember how I was completely obsessed the whole time with the hot dogs because they were passing out the plates, and before I had even started, I wanted to. I wanted to really, really bad, and I knew that I knew that, that would be embarrassing. And I wasn't overweight at the time, but I just knew there was something wrong with wanting to. And I didn't want to embarrass myself. Um, my whole life I wanted to pass for normal. And so I sat there, and every bite of that little hot dog that seven-year-old ate was chewed like 300 times, and I was the last person finished. But I wanted every one of the hot dogs that were there. You know, that, and so when I think back, that compulsion, that addiction, that, you know, why would that piece of food be so important? You know, there, there was something way, way back then. Um, I have an unusual story to tell. Um, we talk about this, you know, recovery and unity, how important it is to not be alone. Um, I always felt alone. I always felt different then. Now, the reason my story is different than some that you hear in these rooms is that I came from a, a very functional family. Um, I was raised by two parents who loved and adored me my whole life. And I lost my mom ten years ago, and I lost my dad five years ago. And I had an incredible relationship my whole life. So I actually did leave, you know, had to leave, leave it to Beaver, Cleaver life. I really did. But it didn't make any difference, did it? Somewhere in me was this compulsion, was this feeling that I was different, was this feeling that I was alone. And so over the years, you know, the weight, the weight crept up. And, you know, I'm sure many of you have done this too. You look back at your, you know, look back at my high school prom pictures. God, I looked really good in them. I didn't feel good. I felt like a fat cow that night in that dress, you know, having my picture taken. Um, but it didn't matter. See, it never mattered the weight. What mattered was how, how I felt about myself. Um, when I came into Overeaters Anonymous, I weighed over 200 pounds, and I don't know how many pounds over because when it hit 200, I quit weighing. I was too, too afraid, you know, to see what the next numbers would be. Um, and I was ashamed of everything about me. And see, here I had these loving parents, right? Darn, shouldn't that have made the difference in my life? I married a terrific guy when I came into OA. I've been married nine years. He never once in our whole time ever judged me about my weight, ever. Not even a look, 
not even a tone of voice. Well, that didn't cure me either, did it? Because all the bad things that nobody else said to me, I had said to myself. You know, I, I said to myself, and I used to just be ashamed to have anybody see me. At that time, um, I'm a teacher, and I was doing home teaching with high school students. And so I would go to the high school, pick up their materials, and they were home sick for long term, and I would, you know, get the materials and teach them. Well, my husband taught at the same high school. I timed when I was there when nobody was out of class. If any, I mean, if the bell had rung and the kids would have poured out of the classrooms, I would have just died because I was so ashamed and I didn't want anybody to know that I was, you know, married to him and I didn't want to embarrass him. And I wore, you know, the big coat to cover my body and zipped in and zipped out of that place. And what's really neat about OA is I can remember being in OA like two weeks, you know. Um, I don't know, probably lost a pound or two in two weeks. I was hip flicking cool. I felt so good about myself. I felt sexy. I felt just, you know, throw back the shoulders, twinkle in the eye, throw up the chin. And what the difference was was not how many pounds I lost. What the difference was was how I felt about myself and was that I had hope. Because I walked in that Thursday morning meeting in 1979 in Modesto, California, and there was hope. There were people like me. Can you imagine? I had, you know, in 1979, there was not a lot of talk about um, eating disorders. I would vaguely heard of AA, but nobody in my family had been involved, so I didn't know much or anything about the 12 steps. But I connected with the people there that morning. And there was a woman there, a beautiful um, woman in, you know, retirement age, lovely silver-haired lady, and she was talking about um, incest. And I remember thinking, what a safe place this must be, that people can talk about things like that, because that's not what you chit-chat over coffee with a neighbor. That's not something you discuss at work. And I just, I was honored to be in a place that felt that safe. Um, I remember... Uh, the, the, the topic for pitching that day was, um, you know, what part of the program works for you? And this one woman said the part, you know, that worked for her was sponsorship, was working with others. And I thought, oh, okay, so you're supposed to get a sponsor. So after the meeting, you know, I asked somebody if they would be my sponsor. And they said no, that they were really, had too many people they were sponsoring at the time. And I was so desperate, I asked the next person that I turned to. And she said yes. She said, but I, I'm not just a food sponsor, I want to sponsor on the steps. And I had no idea what she was talking about. Absolutely no idea. And I said sure. You know, because I was that desperate. Now, if there had been, you know, some kind of special requirements, you know, or if if I wasn't allowed to speak because I wasn't, you know, hadn't been in the program a certain number of days, or if there were any of those things that now we, we support with the traditions, you know, I'm, I might have left, but I was welcomed with open arms. Now, since I've been in OA so long, it's coming up on 24 years, <laughs> you know, I've really grown up in OA. My children have grown up in OA. You know, I had a 4-year-old and a 15-month-old. And my four-year-old is almost 28. And my little baby girl is now a college graduate, and she's 25. And then the best part was having a baby in OA. You know, he's been raised completely in OA. 
and uh, he's almost 22. So my, my life has gone along, my personal recovery. Now, it was interesting getting this section for the readings that go with this, this idea of unity with diversity. And when I looked at the pages, I actually started chuckling because they are the questions at the end of Tradition 1. And I have to tell you that about six weeks ago, my sponsor said, hey, let's write about those questions at the back of the traditions. Now, we're always writing about something. You know, we write letters, Dear God letters. We, we, you know, have written through, you know, different parts of all the AE and OA literature. And so this was just the next best idea. And what we have been, what we have been doing with them is looking at how that tradition affects our group, our little Saturday morning Roseville group. How do we do on that tradition? And then we apply it to our relationships, like at work, business, social. And then we apply it to our personal relationships like at home. And it's just, it's been, you know, an absolute eye-opener. And the, the fifth question when we wrote about this, it said, do we encourage everybody to give full attention to speakers and other group members? And, of course, I was able to say, oh, yes, at my OA meeting, I am intently listening and present for everybody there. But then I got to the part about personal relationships, and, oh, my gosh, I, it just hit me. I don't listen to my husband. You know, I, it was just like, do I give that same, do I practice these in all my affairs? No, I wasn't. And for many, many years, I mean, we just celebrated our 33rd wedding anniversary. And, but I realized I heard him, but I wasn't really listening. And there's, there's a big difference in honoring somebody as they're talking. And, and so uh, these questions have been really helpful to me to apply to giving that same respect, that same honor to the diversity in my own life and to uh, the people that I live with that I, that I, of course, give in the meeting, you know, because OA is sacred. So applying it in all my affairs has been an interesting thing. Now, on page 117, it, it says the important truth is that we are not alone. And as I said before, I always felt alone. And, and what we're talking about today is unity, to be a part of, to be unified, to be together. Um, I always felt that I was alone and different. And how interesting that the, the, whole, the whole focus of that was about my weight. I just thought I was not good as anybody because I was overweight. And that just doesn't make sense. Does that sound sensible to you? I mean, you know, you're a decent human being. You're successful in your career. You're a good wife, a good mom. You're doing all these things. Bottom line, before I came to OA, I didn't think I was good enough. And the reason it's, it doesn't sound reasonable is because, you know, people were kind of analyzing that. They'd say, oh, but... But this isn't about reason. This is about gut feelings. And I remember early in my marriage, my husband would have self-doubt. And, and this was usually like late at night, and we would be talking, and he would say something to me like, I don't know what I'd do without you. I love you so much. What would I do without you? Now, isn't that just what everybody wants to hear from the person they love? You know what would happen? I would break down sobbing. I would just be sobbing my guts out. 
I, th that deep wrenching from the inside of your very soul. And why? Because I didn't think I deserved that love. I didn't think I deserved it. I was amazed he was still married to me. Why hadn't he left me? You know? And to have him declare that, that just absolutely unconditional love and adoration for me, I couldn't accept it because I didn't love myself. And what a gift of our program. You know, we are not alone. And we can love ourselves. And, you know, I, I think back that it was basically because I didn't feel like I deserved that kind of love. So OA has made a difference. I don't want to be alone in OA. So what do I have to do not to be alone in OA? Well, I, first of all, I have to accept that I, what I cannot change. And, I, you know, I love the serenity prayer. I'm always saying that. And the problem is, this is the problem, people don't do it my way. Has that ever been a problem for you? Please. I mean, don't they know? We know. We know the best way. We, you know, um, my family doesn't do it my way. I'm a teacher. And those are the first graders, they certainly don't always do it my way, you know. And this, this wanting to control. And thank goodness we have a program that helps us deal with it and not be alone. Because if I were still acting that way, trying to control, trying to manipulate, trying to get everybody to do it Judy's way, then I'd be alone, wouldn't I? Because that just drives people away. It's, it's not a program of attraction, whether it be in OA or whether it be at work or whether it be at home. I certainly wouldn't have been married 33 years if I kept doing that. Now, here's another one. In order not to be alone in the program and in my own life, I had to give up being right. And that's a hard one because I am right. <laughs> I really am, you know. And then you, you, when you give it up, it's like, oh, my gosh. And I heard a speaker years ago talking about giving up being right with her husband. And I thought to myself, how many times did I make an argument or a comment, just a comment, please, please, just a comment about the direction we were driving to get somewhere. And he had another way to go. How many times did I say something to be right that chiseled away at his self-esteem, that, that took away from him? And so just like in the meetings where there is a diversity of opinions about how we work this program, well, there are darn well different ways to get across town. And that having to be right was just a huge piece. And God put the opportunity again in my um, home life. We just bought a new house. Um, never before had we picked out everything in a house. And who would know that this football coach I'm married to would have opinions about cabinetry and flooring and tile? Oh, you know, really. And he did. And we had to collaborate and talk through and give in, both of us, all the way through. And you know what? Thanks to this program, I was able to do it because going into it, I knew I was right. I really did. You know, I really did. And I, so many things that I, we collaborated on have turned out to be just great. And 
it's made our marriage stronger, you know, which is, you know, just another gift to this program. But if I hadn't stopped trying to be right, and that's something I have to give up on a daily basis to God, um, I would be alone. I would be alone in my life and alone in this program. Um, part of this whole idea of, of unity and accepting people with diversity is to let go of judgments. Um, because I came in feeling less than, and that everybody else, you know, all those skinny people, blonde people, um, you know, rich people, you know, all those judgments I had that they were better than me, just, you know, just because they were living, breathing, and, you know, I was me. Um, I judged myself. But then I found, you know, to be very, very careful, and this is a safe place to practice it in these rooms, is to stop being judgmental of other people. Um, we have a person in our, in our meeting, and I have had this experience years ago in another meeting, where the person says the same thing every week, and the, the person um, probably could maybe be saying it in another 12-step program. It's more of a codependency type issue. And, and I know that what God is teaching me is to be patient and to be loving and respectful of that person who needs to say that every week. Because I know people have heard me rag on the same themes, you know, over all these years. Um, so in order to make that person a part of our program, I have to listen just as intently and respectfully and lovingly to them as I do to everybody else and not be judgmental of their recovery. So those are things that I've been working on. And accepting diversity. Now, I had to think back. Um, the, the whole food plan issue, you know, all these years in OA. When I came into OA, it was just past gray sheet. Um, but we had this little folded food plan, and it was before Dignity of Choice, which had a variety of food plans. And, um, you know, nobody told me I had to follow it. It was just, really, it was just a suggestion, and it, it got me started. But, but then food plans just, you know, have become some source of debate. And when I, when I think about OA How, and, and years back there, there was some controversy about, about them and OA, regular OA, and not knowing that much about them, I think I was a little bit judgmental, saying, ooh, they're not following the traditions and things like that. And then I started looking into OA How, and guess what? That's how I was first brought into this program. I never knew it. The 30 questions that my sponsor in 1979 had me answer, and I did 30 questions in 30 days because I was a good girl, you know. And later these people said, oh, I've been working on them a year. And I thought, oh, well, they told me to do a question a day, so, you know, I was doing it. They were, they were from the OA Health Program. And they got me started not just on a food plan, but into reading the big book and reading the traditions and reading the steps and all the things that got me front-loaded with my program. We have a very interesting thing in our, um, in our local Roseville meeting. We have just the warmest, most loving meeting. I invite you all to Roseville Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Come see us. And about half of our people go to Howe on Thursday night, but come to Saturday morning. And then about half the people are what, you know, you call your regular OA. And there's no problem because it doesn't matter what our food plan is 
And whether or not you're eating white flour, we're not making those kind of judgments. We are all working the 12 steps together. And we are just human beings. And it's none of my business what you eat, and it's none of your business what I eat. So why let that make a break in our unity? Why make, you know, that be something to divide us and to drive people away? I, you know, I just, I just so firmly believe, you know, that everybody, whatever way, whatever path they use to follow our program, as long as, they, you know, they're doing the steps and traditions, let them be. Food plans should not be something to break apart our unity. Now, what about ages? Um, when I first came into OA, I was a young whippersnapper. Okay, I came into that Thursday morning meeting, and I was 30 years old. Okay, now I'm 54. <laughs> okay, but I was the youngest one in the meeting. I moved to Idaho the next year, and they were all university kids, and my sponsor was 20 years old. If I had put any judgment on, you know, who, could, who I would learn from, it, that would have been a problem. My group loves to sponsor Unity Day every February, and one year we decided, okay, we'll have somebody, a gay or lesbian speak, that would be part of Unity, we'll have somebody from House speak, we'll have somebody who's an old-timer speak, we'll have somebody who's a fairly newcomer speak, uh, we'll have somebody young speak, you know, we wanted diversity, and guess what, we all talked about the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. And so now the theme that has evolved for our Unity Day is together we can do what we could never do alone. And that we say at the end of every meeting. And I know they call it the OA promise, but I think it's really about unity, that we don't have to do this alone. And I am so grateful for a program that I have been in for close to 24 years that allows all the people with what other path they're following to be a part of what we're doing. So together we can do what we can never do alone. And, you know, remember I told you the story of when I, before OA and my husband telling me how much he meant to him, I meant to him. Well, years later after being in OA, he calls me. He calls me before he comes home from work. It's just this dear sweet thing he does. I mean, he's literally maybe driving to the house. And we're just checking in with each other. And it's the most loving thing in the world, you know. And one day, all of a sudden, I realized I deserved it. I deserve that love. And it's because of this program. Thank you all. Thank you very much, Judy. Okay, now we're going to go on to our second speaker, which is Jack from Whittier, and he will speak for 25 minutes. Compulsive overeater. Hi, well, and uh, I think kind of like Judy when I got the uh, the assignment and it was uh, three pages of questions. I wondered uh, what I was going to talk about. 
And, uh, you know, I enjoyed uh, Judy's uh, share very much. And uh, there were a couple of things that came to, to mind. Uh, and uh, there was a man many years ago named uh, Don R. And he used to share about his uh, his sister. And uh, it, it comes to the level of, of how we feel about ourselves. And everyone in the community in which she lived thought that she was wonderful. They loved her. They loved her husband. They loved their children. They had a beautiful home. They were involved in the community and very much loved. And uh, and yet his his sister took her own life. And in the note that she left behind, it showed how she felt about herself. She said, I am no good as a wife or a mother, and the world would be better off without me. Uh, and that, boy, that really struck me. Uh, and the late uh, John Warren used to say that we come into this, this fellowship uh, feeling separate from and wanting to be very much a part of, and we become part of it the only way that we know how to be part of it, and that's by trying to control it. You know? Uh, and so he said that there were too many chiefs and too few Indians, and his goal was to learn how to be an Indian. Yeah. And I think that uh, that the first tradition gives us the opportunity, because it's uh, just as Judy was talking about collaborating with her husband on the various decisions that uh, were made. It's the same thing here. It's learning give and take. And I'm always very good at learning give and take when I'm watching two others doing it, and I can see, you know, but when I'm involved, it's often uh, more difficult. The you know, scale I used to go with used to ask me if I would rather be right or happy. <laughs> and I would, I would always answer both. <laughs> and I was trying to remember of a quote that a, a friend of mine uh, gives, I can't recall it, but it's very appropriate to it. Anyhow, the idea was, uh, to learn to, to give in, and you'll be right all the time. You know, uh, so, and and then you were also, you know, I too, as Judy, comes from a fairly normal household, uh, although I didn't feel normal. Uh, the family was very normal, and I have a sister named Judy, so <laughs> that worked out quite well. Uh, Ida did good planning. So, but... Many years ago, my wife and I were at a swap meet, and we were we were walking through, looking at the different uh, different things there. And I happened, uh, I think we were there because a friend of mine at work had something going. And my wife was uh, was quite a bit overweight. She had, uh, when I first met her, she had had 35 pounds to lose, and she left OA and uh, came back about nine years later and had 185 pounds to lose. And so uh, she was taken aback at one point when she noticed that I didn't hesitate in introducing her to these people. And uh, she said to me something about, you know, you're not embarrassed to be with me. And uh, and I told her that I wasn't, you know. Uh, and I truly was not. 
and that's the feeling that I've often had at times, that, uh, that people, that I was an embarrassment to the room, to the people, to whatever. And, uh, and so it, uh, it helps. You know, and the lead-in statement of our reading there, unity is not mean uh, conformity. Uh, you know, I, at the World Service uh, Business Conference this year, there were results given of a survey that was taken uh, last year. And one of the survey results showed that the people who had the longest time in OA and who had long-term abstinence uh, both had uh, a greater reliance on the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous and on the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous and that those who uh, had difficulty listed their first choice as the OA 12 and 12. You know, and they said, we don't know what that means, but you know, in my mind, I know what that means because in AA, it's cut and dry. You know, this is life or death. And uh, the OA 12 and 12 in the first tradition, it gets to the second page before it even mentions anything about this being a life or death matter. And the AA 12 and 12 comes right out and states it. And it also, you know, when I mentioned this morning in, in the room, uh, one of the guys asked what I was, uh, what I was sharing on, and I mentioned it to him, and he said, oh, the people in the boat. And I'm thinking, what is, you know, and then it had dawned on me that in the AA 12 and 12, it uses the analogy of Eddie Rickenbacker and uh, his crew. They crashed in the Pacific, and they uh, they all survived in a raft. And in the in Alcoholics Anonymous comes of age, it uses the same comparison as it does, and it it says that that was just the start because they were now in the dangerous seas, and this is. Uh, so appropriate to our disease. Uh, see, well, he uh, he mentions that there was no doubt in their minds that the common welfare came first. Nobody dared rock that raft lest they perish. Bread and water were shared equally. There were no gluttons. And uh, that, in turn, reminded me of, uh, of the big book. And there is a solution where it talks about, the, like, we're passengers on a great uh, liner that goes down in the moment after rescue where there's this camaraderie and shared joy. And that, uh, that that camaraderie and that shared joy is just part of the cement that binds us together. And what really binds us together and so many of us uh, have felt that we get along better with one another than we do members of our own family, and it's because we have a common disease and a common need for each other. And that sometimes uh, allows us to overcome our differences. And in the questions that we had here, I noticed uh, that there was a question about, you know, do we allow newcomers to dominate the meeting? But there was no question uh, about uh, do we try to make the newcomer feel welcome. 
because one of the things I've often noticed in meetings is that little clicks do form at the break or before or after the meeting, and the new person comes in and that uh, some, well, I don't know how long it was, 32 years ago when I used to go to the Westminster Monday night meeting, which had a regular attendance of between three and 500 people, uh, which is very impressive to me, I had the opportunity uh, to lead the meeting. And what I always felt, you know, I always yearn for the opportunity to, to be in the limelight, and then when I'm in the limelight, I wonder, how did I get here? Uh, I'm great in the shower. Uh, so my, my time came up to share, and I stood up before the assemblage, all these people, uh, three to 500 eyes looking at me, uh, they weren't looking at each other, and I couldn't say a word. I mean, I got, my name is Jack, I'm a compulsive overeater, and uh, that was about about it, other than the ahs on occasion. And I, I finished my 10-minute lead of silence, and I, I, at the break, I stepped down, and from the crowd, this woman came up, and she was quite a bit overweight. She came up front, and she said, I so much wanted to, wanted to tell them what you did for me. And, you know, the only thing that I had done for that lady was I had been at a meeting uh, a couple weeks before that she had been at, and she was a newcomer. And what I did was I took the time to talk to her and to make her feel welcome. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things that we need to do, not just with the newcomer, but with one another. And that's sometimes a way to, uh, to overcome differences, is if we can just get to... Uh, I know that there are some things that are very important to, uh, to some of us. I've had very important issues over the years that I, uh, that I think are extremely important. You know, and one of the main ones is that Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship, and I get so tired of hearing people refer to it as an organization. And when I first came in, we were a fellowship, and nobody ever used the term organization. Uh, and, and so I think that that's one of the reasons, and other people feel it's the differences over food. And I think if we can put our focus on, uh, on the fact that we all have common food problems, whether they're the same or not. I mean, every drinker didn't drink the same brands or whatever, uh, and some were, you know, there were different varieties there. Uh, and if we can, can focus on that, and uh, it will be much better off than if we try to pursue other, other courses. Uh, and and AA comes of age. I always like when I talk, especially about a tradition, to go into the origins of it. And they do so well in covering it, and it reminds me of uh, that there's the theme is separation and unity. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, Chuck C. used to say, he was a recovered alcoholic, and he used to say that there was only one problem and one solution. And he said the problem was conscious separation from God, and the solution was conscious unity. And he said 
note that I said conscious separation from God because there is no such thing as separation from God, except in our minds. And, uh, and the solution is conscious unity. And it's, it ends up being the same thing uh, here because it's, it speaks in, uh, in AA comes of age of uh, our problems as being slips with, in their case, alcohol, that those were, were possible destructive force and romance slips. And I was thinking, you know, we use the term slips too here, and it's like slips with the food or slips between the sheets. And those those two things are very common, and they end up leading to to other problems where gossip comes from. You you see two people consistently together at various meetings, and you go, aha, you know, they're going together. And aha, they're going together may not be true at all. They they just show up or they travel together, but that doesn't mean that they're going together. And we so easily jump to conclusions and find a reason to divide us. Uh, and so then it says that the desires for power, uh, they don't use the word control, but the word they use to me meant control, or glory, which to me is pride, and money. Uh, and that's become become problems. And that those come from uh, self-righteousness and self-justification, and then they mention a sense of uh, self-indignation. Uh, and that their sources are pride, fear, and anger, and that the solution to those is true brotherhood, harmony, and love with clear insight and right practice. Boy. And that's, that's what, what I can do. And I can't do it for you. Judy can't. And Judy's shared very well on, uh, on how she is working through things. Uh, but that's what I can can try to do by asking myself, how important is this really? Uh, and if it if it ends up not being of great importance in the long run, then maybe I can uh, either drop it or be willing to no- negotiate. Maybe there's a middle ground. Uh, and if there's a middle ground, let's go for it. You know, uh, a former uh, executive director of, of OA many years ago, I loved him, Dr. Ralph McIntyre, uh, and he had contact mostly with members of the board, but also with other members of the fellowship. And he spoke about how OA people like to state that they were black and white people, but now they they are gray people. And he said, in his experience, they're still black and white people. You know, it's still this way or that way. We just think that we become gray. Yeah. Uh, and but we can actually become gray, and we can. We can uh, care for one another and look out for one another like those people on the ship because our mutual survival depends upon it. And from that brings harmony. And it doesn't mean that we can't have differences of, of opinion. Uh, good Lord, I've, I've been to meetings of various fellowship where, you know, fights almost literally, well, in fact, one meeting a fight did take place. But uh, at the bottom line, the core was that they knew that their survival depended upon their mutual recovery uh, and, and love. 
you know, it's kind of looking out for the other guy. And then the the ultimate thing is the attitude with which I approach it and the way that I that I act when circumstances arise. And that uh, that seems to be the the gist. Oh, it's not the guy that said not. Uh, that seems to be the gist of it. And it starts out from the very moment that I first enter a meeting and, uh, and notice if there is a newcomer and am I willing to give up a little bit of time and talk to that person. And then in, the, in our 12 and 12, it talks about, um, you know, that we separate because of differences and are we willing to put our own personal differences aside and begin taking time to talk to people. I have a, a great opportunity sometimes to, one of the two guys with whom I'm rooming, we love each other dear, different, uh, no, I mean, we love each other dearly, and yet we have, we have some real differences. And I think that we tend to bring out the defects in one another. Uh, and that can be a great opportunity. And I tend to be the, the type of, uh, I'm more of kind of a holy roller at times. I don't just make my point. I make my point and drive it home and, until it becomes a buried stake in your heart. Uh, and the, this morning, I was thinking about this a little while ago. This morning, I just happened to make a comment, which was something I, I believe in. But I didn't bury the stake. I just made the comment. And let it go, moved on. And a few minutes later, one of them said, you know, you're right, Jack. And I'm thinking to myself, right about what? <laughs> and then he told me, and I still couldn't remember, and then I remembered that it was something that I had said, and I just let go of it. You know, and it, it's the same thing. I, I don't react real well uh, when other people do what, what, I, what I do and make the point and drive the point and drive the point and drive the point. You get so sick of the point that you're willing to do it all over again. Yeah. Uh, and so it was, it was a lesson just this morning on, on that very thing. And then a couple minutes later, the, the guy that, uh, that I room with and we really love each other, he said, you know, you were right about that too. You know? And those are words I'd love to hear. Yeah. <laughs> Now, there's a friend of mine, and I've often, I've often told her, you know, you know, I'd like to hear those, those three little words, you know, you were right, you know. and it, it's a sad thing, but it's part of my, part of my personality, and I have to learn to work around that part. Um, you know, I was wondering earlier whether or not there'd be enough time to talk about everything, and now I'm wondering if I'll have end up saying enough. Uh, but another thing is, it was I don't normally read uh, for today, but I took a look at it today. This little voice in me, and it says, uh, "We are rarely proud when we are alone." Uh, Voltaire. And the reading, I want to be with others as I am with myself. There are no pretenses or defenses or self-defeating attitudes. I am learning not to hurt myself, so I play no games. I don't try to impress myself or act as if I'm important. And that's the, that's the thing. When 
And that's the part, as I began, about the chiefs and the Indians and trying to take control. Because when somebody says something, am I then going to bring up something that, that tries to take away from what they just said? Or, or is what they said maybe not the way I would have said it, but is it enough? And can I then just support that idea without then taking it and trying to magnify it? And it's the same thing I've said about OA people and diets, that, you know, uh, we've never met a diet that we couldn't defeat, you know. And how do we defeat it? We defeat it by making it better. And it gets so much better that we put back on the weight and then more. So if we can just learn to follow uh, directions, that's first and foremost, and that's the lesson that I learned many years ago with the lady that saved my life when I made the call and she told me what I was going to do and I did exactly what she told me to do. And, and maybe it's just, just for today, allowing somebody else to be who they are and who God made them to be. And for me to try to be not just who God made me to be, but uh, focus more on that on who, than who I'd like to be or what point I'd like to make. And uh, I, I think I've said enough. Amazing. We will now have questions from the Ask It Basket. Um, what I'm going to do is I'll go ahead and uh, and read these questions, and um, and then we'll give the the uh, speakers an opportunity to answer. Um, we're going to start with Jack, and the question is: How do you apply unity in your recovery? I, I think I uh, somewhat shared about that, and it's uh, largely, as I was talking about at the end, being willing to give other people an opportunity. You know, one of the things that when I first came in, I had ideas and other people had ideas on how to improve the quality of a meeting or of uh, we had a California Central Service Office. Which, you know, now we have intergroups and regions. And so we would try these different things, and sometimes they would work, and sometimes they would not work. And as the years have gone on, I've seen other people come in, and they've tried some of those. They'll come up with some of the very ideas that we had years ago, and we found out that it didn't work. And sometimes I think there ought to be a book that states methods we have tried, and you know, just like it's with, with our food there, and methods we have tried and losing weight, the methods we have tried and that didn't work. Uh, and when it comes up, I immediately will poo-poo it because I know that it's been tried the same thing in different areas at different times, and it doesn't work. And sometimes I'm listened to, and sometimes I'm not listened to. Uh, and I don't know if it would really do any harm if I just uh, were to say that, you know, it was tried and it didn't work, kind of make my point and drop it. Uh, and if they decide to go ahead and do it, let them go ahead and do it. Uh, many years ago at a meeting I used to go to, uh, 
was a great Lakewood Love Group, uh, they implemented something, and I felt so strongly against it that I stopped attending that meeting for six months. And I just I was guided to go to that meeting six months later, and it turned out that that very night they had had another steering committee meeting, and they had switched things back to the way they were, and they let me know that I was right. And it was probably best that I didn't go for those six months because I would have been reminding them on a weekly basis or whatever what they had done and it wasn't working, and they probably would not have gone around and, and changed it back. They would have been determined in their course. So it's uh, you know, just giving it a, the light touch. <laughs> Thank you. This question is for both speakers, and we'll go ahead and we'll start with Judy. If you see members participating in actions that are that are counter unity, what do you do? Let me see. If I see people using actions that are counter to unity, what do I do? Well, our groups um, thoroughly believe in um, the monthly business meeting, and um, so rather than letting things simmer over time or having people leave meetings because there is a problem, and I'm talking now at a meeting, um, we, we bring things up at our business meeting um, so that, you know, everybody feels included, and yet uh, so also, though, I think the best unity is when we're following the traditions, when we're um, following, you know, the format that we've you know, that we do in OA. Um, so I, I think it's through that collaborative group conscience process um, that the problems get solved. And um, just like Jack said at another point, you know, I don't always get my way, um, but it is a group conscience. And then it is a unified feeling. It's not that one person says, you can't say that, you can't speak, you can't interrupt. You can't give advice. It's the group conscience, you know, of, of how we how we speak from a spiritual base. So that's just something that works for us is to have a regular business meeting and encourage people to come and, and to share things like that. And everybody has a voice that way. Yeah. I uh, I think Judy pretty much uh, said it. The only thing is, in in some instances, like the like outside literature, that uh, you know, that that is in violation of traditions when you have outside literature, and it, it's it's an an important thing. But if it's if it's other other things that may not relate directly to the traditions. I think it's very advisable for everybody to read and become familiar with their traditions because over the years I've heard people complain about things being a violation of the traditions when they don't even apply and think that something was in the traditions when it really isn't. And if they had read the background, they, they would know that. But uh, a collaborative process is generally good. Uh, the next question is for both of you. It says, how do you stay out of your loved ones, for instance, husband, wife, kids, etc., are eating? How do you stay out of what your loved ones are eating? Ah, this is Judy. How do I stay out of what they're eating? 
Okay. Um, that, that's, that's interesting because I got to practice that in my recovery, and I first learned it in these rooms where it really is not my business what other people in OA are eating, so it really is not my business what, what my family is eating either. Um, it's, it's that knowing that I have to just take care of myself in my own recovery. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I have not mainlined sugar in 19 years. I gave it up in 1984 when somebody in the program told me, you will give it up when it does more to you than for you. And at that time, I was only eating it like, you know, one thing a year. But until, until I quit and gave it up, I was still making the decision every time I saw it, smelled it, was around it. So I completely gave that up. That doesn't mean that my family gave it up. Um, just like the alcoholic, you know, has to, has to, you know, live out in the world, I have to live out in a world that's not eating like perhaps I do. Um, I discovered when my daughter was a freshman in high school that she was bulimic. And um, my, that my youngest son, who was raised in OA, right? Should have made him perfect. Huh? God had other plans for him because he, he seemed to be a compulsive overeater a little bit in high school. And I just, I just did what I would do for any other OA. You know, I loved him unconditionally. And um, that, it's not a problem for him anymore. So with that about what somebody else is eating is a judgment that I know better. You know, and as long as they're not trying to shove something down my throat, it's none of my business. And the only time I've ever had trouble with that, um, people that don't know that I, you know, that I donate sugar, they'll offer it, and I'll just say, no, thank you. Um, sometimes they'll press you, and, and I laughingly say, there's not enough. You don't want me to start. Um, so that kind of takes care of my side of the street, and the other side of the street's their business. Okay, uh, I noticed at the end of this it has, please help with an exclamation uh, mark. Uh, yeah, and I have, I have two feelings. One is the one that, that Judy just uh, conveyed, which I think is with, with uh, family or with, with friends. Uh, and then I, I have to, I, I feel that from the moment of surrender until now, uh, I haven't had the desire. Or, or urge to compulsively overeat, an overwhelming desire or urge. And I'm very grateful for that. And I feel that one of the things that hinders us is that we feel deprived. And I would wonder whether or not uh, the person who asked this may be feeling deprived that someone else is able to have what they aren't able to have. But the other, the other point in not leaving it go is I was a prime caregiver for my father the last three or four years of his life and there were some uh, some foods that he was absolutely not supposed to have that he really wanted uh, but they would have complicated his medical problems and so I was uh, he would he would want him and I would always uh, you know, say, let's talk with the doctor, whatever, and the doctor would always nix it. And so I felt like a villain, uh, often like a villain in the instance. And my brothers and my sisters 
would occasionally relent because they felt, well, he's not going to get much better anyhow, maybe, and so they would let him have a little bit. Uh, and I don't, I don't know which approach was really best. Uh, I just know that I felt that, you know, I wanted to keep him alive and healthy and around for as long as possible, and yet I, I understood uh, the possibility of the other side. So, thank you. This next question is a little off topic, but uh, if someone was asking it, I guess that they, uh, they're looking for some help, too, and it's, what do you eat for breakfast? Oh, goodness. Well, I'll take this one first because I'm a, I'm a rut eater for breakfast. Uh, for, for the first many years, I would have, uh, well, when I lost my weight, I'd have two eggs and a fruit. And then uh, when I got on, on maintenance, I would have two eggs and a fruit and, uh, and a grain. Uh, and now for several years, I've had, uh, I have a half a cup of, of muesli, and I add some stuff to that, and I have a full fruit portion that I add to that. I've had it cold or hot, and then, uh, and then I have yogurt. And, uh, you know, it's uh, been very satisfying to me. Judy, your turn. <laughs> oh, this is funny. Um, yeah, um, be, before um, coming into OA, I didn't eat breakfast. And then I would, you know, start eating massive amounts of food around 11 o'clock every day. And um, one of the disciplines that I had to learn was three meals a day. And um, I can remember um, having, like, an egg, and then it said you had a half a cup of orange juice. I would put it in a crystal wine glass. By golly, if I was getting a half a cup of orange juice, it was going to look good, <laughs> you know. And so I like to start treating myself really good. Um, busy out the, out the door in the morning, um, my school starts at 745. I, you know, I, I leave for work at 630 sometimes. Um, I have a, a, it's a whole wheat health food kind of bar and a glass of nonfat milk every morning. And I think there's something to be said about ruts. Um, when I look for food for entertainment, when I am looking forward to something, I don't look forward to my breakfast, I just eat it. Um, I, there's something going on if food has to, has to be doing something for me. Um, so I, I think ruts are kind of okay. And we'll go ahead and make this the last question and we'll start it with Jack. What do you say to newcomers at your meetings? Well, I uh, I usually uh, try to to welcome them, tell them that I'm I'm glad that they're there, uh, and I I also sometimes ask them how they found out about Overeaters Anonymous. I think that they're kind of common routine uh, questions. Uh, and, you know, many years ago, uh, people would talk about the newcomers not asking that, you know, didn't ask for a sponsor and didn't return. And I was listening to somebody once, and they talked about 
the newcomer having made a first step in coming there. You know, and that's true. And I remember how I sweated bullets, you know, in showing up at the first OA meeting. I didn't know what this was like, what what would be done to me. Uh, uh, and so sometimes I end up asking them uh, for their phone number instead of just giving them my phone number. I ask them for their phone number so that I can call them. And if they're comfortable with that, fine. And if they're not, then you know, I just let them have my number. But I I think that it's it's important to make them uh, to make them feel welcome. I didn't say earlier that I've uh, been around since the 12th of February 1971 with abstinence from somewhere between the middle of May and the latter part of August of 1971. And uh, one more follow-up on the previous question was that I had a sponsor of mine that told me, uh, and this carries off of what you said, that uh, that the mere thought of a bite of food was enough to get him to do abstinence, you know, to get him to do an inventory on what was going on in him that he was uncomfortable with. Yeah. I remember the meeting, too, that somebody that pitched talked about this food that they had at home in their refrigerator and that they kept obsessing about it. And, you know, my thought was that if there's a food like that that I would obsess about, then I have no business having it, period. You know, it's best just to give it up. Okay, about the, about the newcomers, um, I think it's a really scary to come into a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. Like I said, just the name. Um, more and more people are coming in through other 12-step programs, they, all of that. Um, I've had some new new contact with newcomers because um, we changed meeting sites about four months ago and I offered to contact WSO and update them. And when I did that, and it was all an online process, um, they wanted to contact, so I put my name and number. I get so many phone calls from newcomers who have gone online. And that that's just a real joy. I mean, we have our regular intergroup things that go on, but that's been a real, real joy for me. Um, I always try and make them feel welcome. And we have a newcomer packet we give them, and we give them a, a phone list of you know, the, the people that regularly come to our meeting, besides passing around a phone list. So it's, it's printed up. It has emails and stuff like that on it, too. And then what different ones of us do is as we say hello to them and stuff, we'll, we'll put like a star by our name. I'll say, I'm this Judy. You know, give me a call. I'd love to talk to you about the program, that kind of thing. But at our our business meeting in May, it was decided that maybe we weren't reaching out enough to our newcomers and maybe we needed to be doing more follow-up phone calls ourselves, just not waiting for them to call us and just have our phone number sitting there. And so um, I offered to be the newcomer greeter and to, to start making those phone calls, but also to encourage everybody to do it because, again, we're not alone. And we need to make sure that they feel welcome. And something besides that is I think we need to reach out to the members in our fellowship who are suffering in our own rooms, um, whether it be relapse, emotional you know, problems, whatever, that we make sure that we're calling those people, too, and not just newcomers, but making sure they're all so inclusive. Thank you. Amen. Fantastic. Um, Judy and, and Jack, I'd like to thank you both very much for uh, 
for doing service and coming to speak. And I'd also thank, like to thank the members here uh, for attending the workshop. Uh, we are going to be breaking up just a little bit early um, this morning. Uh, and the workshops will begin again at 1 o'clock. So we've got a little bit longer uh, uh, to go out and, and, uh, and have our, our noontime meal. And nobody's complaining, yeah. <laughs> nobody's raising hands. I'd like uh, to thank you very much. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, thank you. Mary it was is a wonderful lady. I've worked with her before. <laughs> oh, it was my pleasure to do service uh, by moderating this workshop. And uh, again, thank you for attending the workshop and for attending the 2003 convention. Uh, we're going to wrap this up with uh, the third step prayer. Thanks a lot.